Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. We are coming back to season three of The Magicians, looking yeah. at episode five, A Life in the Day. Britt, why don't you give us a recap to start us off? So the episode opens with Alice taking Penny and the truth key to see Katie while she's in the hospital. Katie isn't happy to find out that Penny only exists as a projection and says that he can't help her. She has to put herself back together. Unfortunately, Katie yelling at an invisible person is caught on surveillance footage, so the hospital staff won't let her leave. In New York, Julia and Alice have a heart-to-heart, and then Persephone appears to Julia and explains how she took away Reynard's magic and gave it to Julia, which is why she's the only human with magic. Julia is furious and repulsed by this revelation and says that she'd give the magic to Alice if she could. At break bills, Quentin and Elliot work on the quest for the next key, but end up in Fillory in the past, decades before the Chatwins even arrive. To get the time key, they have to make a mosaic depicting the beauty of all life. There are oodles of possible combinations, so it takes them decades and decades, during which Q gets married, has a son, loses his wife, and raises his kid with Elliot. Elliot dies before they complete their mission, but when Q prepares to bury him, he unearths a golden mosaic tile that reveals the key. But then young Jane Chatwing comes along, so Quentin has to give her the key because it's what her future self used to make the time loops that they all needed to defeat Martin. Back in present-day Fillory, the Fairy Queen forces Margot to marry Prince Micah of the floating mountain that is no longer floating. However, during the ceremony, Micah's teen brother decapitates him so that he can call on a custom that requires the brother to enter the marriage instead. When opening wedding gifts, Margot finds one that is a letter from elderly Quentin in the past, he tells her to visit Jane Chatwin in the Clock Barrens. Jane encourages Marco, but also tells her to rob Jane's grave to get the time key. Margot then arrives in Break Bells with the key right before Quentin and Elliot embark on their quest. But don't worry, the timeline isn't erased because the episode ends with Quentin and Elliot sitting in Fillory and suddenly remembering their life together. Aww. okay well what about your magic moments what stood out to you this episode yeah so i remember back when i first saw the show and this episode i was actually really quite surprised i didn't Mm -hmm. there are plenty of signs about quentin's feelings for elliot in a way obviously Elliot has mentioned that he had a little crush on him, but like, mm-hmm. he's like, eh, this straight boy, I'm not going to try to pursue this in any way. I also thought, you know, my first time watching, it was just nice that Quentin was portrayed as somebody who wasn't homophobic, yeah, which is not common, sadly. So then when we got to this episode, I was actually surprised that, yeah, they had Quentin be a not- straight character even if maybe he's a one on the kinsey scale or Mm -hmm. something like that it's not the kind of 
cookie cutter of the straight white hero mm-hmm. boy. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I remember the first time watching it, I was pleasantly surprised by that. And then watches since then, you do pick up on all of these different things prior to, but I know this is the first time that you've rewatched this episode. So you might have more to say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this episode is so great. Of the entire series, this is one of the pieces that I remembered best Mm. because it is such a pleasant surprise to see them go this direction with a on-paper straight white male hero, you know, protagonist. Uh, But to explore what it means to be out of time, but also to explore the relationship between these two, which has had... Yeah, all sorts of close friendship, romantic, sexual feelings in the past uh, mm-hmm. that this was a a really, really well done culmination of that. Yeah, it's just it's great. And they also didn't cop out at the end and make it so that it never happened. <laughs> I remember when we watched it the first time or when you watched it the first time, you were like, I was going to be so angry if it was just, and it never happened. Mm-hmm. Or they at least don't remember that it did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the whole episode is very much a magic moment of the series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's a really, yeah, interesting, shouldn't need to be. <laughs> bold move, but Mm -hmm. it is in the context of television for, yeah, a character that you meet the character and for two and a half seasons, you're thinking of mainly in the context of of, of one way for their sexuality and... um, Besides the threesome. Well, of course, but this woman was there, you know, like this... Margot was was instigated between Margot and Quentin, Mm -hmm. you know, but we also see them kissing Quentin and Elliot. So like, yeah, again, it kind of like what you're saying, it kind of raised the specter of this throughout the series. And unfortunately, so many shows do that, right? That there's, there's a term for it, queer baiting, mm-hmm. you know, of making it seem like characters have a relationship that could be interpreted as queer, but never making it explicit, mm-hmm. you know, with the knowledge that Tumblr and, and queer communities online and other places will eat that up and, and we'll take we'll, it and run with exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but here I appreciate that. Yeah. Instead of being so distracted or controlled by homophobia, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. they're just exploring the story and the characters. Yeah. Yeah. I also liked in this episode is Julia when she's talking to Persephone mm-hmm. and just like, the incredulity on Julia's face and in her voice that she can't even comprehend that this god can't understand how inappropriate, violating again, insensitive, not caring about her consent, you know, all of these things. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can you How could you possibly be that oblivious? How could you possibly not even ask me after everything that Julie went through and spared her son, you know, then, yeah, this God just, oh, I'm just going to give this to her, you know? (laughs) And, and so, yeah, I just think that Stella May did a really good job there. Just, it's so 
unbelievable, but through her interactions with gods, it's completely believable. And then her kind of quiet fury, just saying, I don't want it. I don't accept it. But knowing that Persephone didn't change anything, she yeah. didn't, Julia's wishes even now into consideration. And Julia just interacting with this god, knowing that it's a god, but not treating her with any reverence. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I like for Julia's character. Absolutely. One of the all-time Julia moments, which is saying something. Yeah, I mean, she's often called God-touched because mm -hmm. she's had a lot of interaction with gods, but she's also the one that can get the closest to touch gods, too, you know? Because they're gods, she does not treat them like they are above or beneath her. It's just, no, you also need to be held accountable. Um, yeah. I'm not going to think, oh, you know best, or be just scared of your power in case you want to smite me. Like, no, she's she's not going to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are also a couple great Marco quotes. As always. As always. One, I don't give a queef. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Marco. <laughs> and then also, at the end of the episode, when she and Elliot, you know, she runs and gives him a hug and... He explains the situation and he says, you saved our lives. And she says, in addition to robbing a cradle and a grave. Very, very good. <laughs> so great. So, Margo. Another line I loved was earlier in the episode before Quentin and Elliot go into past Fillory, uh, Bunny arrives, Margo saying she needs help because of this whole marriage thing. Elliot says to the bunny, hello there, little plot developer, <laughs> which is just a great... <laughs> I think it was, well, hello there, little plot development. That's what I wrote down. Oh, least. one but, or the other, but either way, yes. Yeah, either way, it, I wrote it down because I also thought it was a amazing line. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, back to the whole what strippers call Quelliot. <laughs> yes. Uh, plot line. Yeah, just a lot of great moments when they first enter Fillory of the Past and they can feel the magic and they hug and they're laughing and like it's back and then they realize oh we're in the past somehow mm -hmm. but that moment when they feel the magic you know seeing these magicians get to be around magic again after not being around it for so long uh, I think is yeah it was it was a nice moment and then we also get the very humorous, very realistic, and expected reality of doing this quest is not just fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy, and Quentin very quickly gets frustrated. Elliot's just like, it's only been two weeks. <laughs> just two weeks. Mm -hmm. And Quentin's already frustrated because it's not just the nice quick hero moment that that he wants right and but i mean it's also understandable to be frustrated because quentin says we're brought back to a time where magic exists except on the one thing we needed to yeah which yes would be quite frustrating but him throwing a tantrum is just so funny kicks over the stack of tiles <laughs> and it's like oops and Elliot being just very reasonable, very 
this is our quest. We have to do it ourselves. This is what we're going to do. But then them also kind of going back and forth and like showing very quickly that one would get frustrated and then the other one will step in. Okay, I'll write it down now because a different time Elliot's sprawled across the mosaic mm-hmm. and it's just like I'm done and and so yeah it's just nice to see their kind of back and forth and I guess in some ways the shouldering of something difficult together and then of course the happy anniversary to our first and last year at this <laughs> it's not the way it's gonna go no no so yeah there was there was a lot of uh fun little moments in there yeah a a really well put together montage of their life because we get to see their life in about five minutes and Mm -hmm. you know if that and i think they do a really good job of presenting that in a way that is understandably brief and concise but also tells a clear story tells an emotional story and is compelling Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what about you? What are your magic moments? I also love the sound design in this episode. Mm. Um, I noticed it in particular in two places. One was the music cue that was used during the montage and how that is what helps communicate that they're regaining their memories. Is It plays mm-hmm. again at the end of the episode and then they say, you know, peaches and plums and, you know, that is what highlights, oh, they understand the memories. They get it. Yeah, I think it's just a really effective way of utilizing a music cue to communicate really, really important things. And, you know, some of the best movies and TV shows in the world are well known for doing that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Star Wars and Vader's theme coming on in any scene, you know, in a scene when Anakin is killing the Tusken Raiders, these musical cues are helping to tell a story as much as what's happening on the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I also love how they use a kind of like high pitch sound whenever any of them are using the keys to help kind mm-hmm. of show that discomfort that they're feeling and show how this is something that is uncomfortable. This is magical that their perception of reality is altered. Yeah. Again, just a, a really great way of, communicating elements of the story through sound. Yeah. I also loved how at the end of the episode, when Margot is back reunited with Elliot and Quentin, who aren't dead anymore, mm-hmm. and they're talking about their dying, about her marriage, all these things, and they're just sharing beers and nuts. Like, <laughs> it's such a them thing to just be like having a beer over talking about these extraordinary circumstances of dying and then time looping out of that dying but still having the key like all of this i think is just yeah fascinating they've shared a lot of alcohol and nuts together (laughs) exactly exactly uh and then my final magic moment was when prince fomar the younger prince uh comes out and Margot thinks that he is going to be her betrothed (laughs) uh (laughs) She says, oh, no, 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 that's too freaky even for me. (laughs) And I think she's meant to be talking about his age because he's quite young, but he's also just holding a noose. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I first heard that line, 
I thought that's what Marco was referring <laughs> to, was him coming out just casually holding a noose in his hands and, you know, with the idea of her having to marry him. It, it's very good. She makes a reference to Joffrey from Game of Thrones, who becomes this sadistic king and tortures women and, you know, does these kinds of things. So it's like, yeah, this young child with a violent symbol in his hands is just <laughs> no, like, no 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 no, 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 no. So for me, that became just like a, a great Marco moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but why don't we head into our next section on setting and society? What did you bring to discuss? Yeah. So speaking of Prince Fomar and all of them. I think it's it's interesting and good to show that even in this matriarchal society, mm. it, that doesn't mean that there aren't problematic customs. That doesn't mean that there isn't any parts of patriarchy or any parts of potential elitism and, and things that can come with ideas of royalty and, Absolutely. and stuff like that. Uh, it's not just, oh, and this is a matriarchal utopia. Sure, matriarchal societies, it would be a lot better, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. Yeah. Societies change and evolve. And so Margot's ideas and standards it doesn't mean it's just automatically going to be met, you know. Even if a matriarchal society in Fillory or on the planet of Fillory would be a breath of fresh air compared to ones that she's had to deal with, uh, doesn't mean, yeah, it's just going to be exactly like what she would want or, or their customs would all coincide with her ideals, you know. Absolutely. And I appreciate that she mentions to Elliot that it's different her being forced into a marriage than him being forced into a marriage, which he was as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this also brings in assumptions about the use of her body. Mm -hmm. And and when she's had to deal with being considered not elevated enough compared to the High King, you mm -hmm. know, okay, so now the High Queen has a husband in Fillory where she continues to reign how much will that be a challenge to her power, even if it wouldn't have been in the floating mountain? So, yeah, I think that it's important to, to recognize those gender dynamics at play, even as we have seen, you know, for in both cases, that this is an example of how in feudal and feudal-esque societies, and other societies, frankly, people in power can often see marriage as a tool of consolidating alliances with other people in power. And that certainly is what is happening here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also love a side note that they keep <laughs> having to struggle with the name of the floating mountain mm -hmm. because it's not floating anymore, which is just such a magician's yeah, it's <laughs> sort great. of oh, magic is gone, so we're going to have them deal with this floating mountain society that's mm -hmm. not floating anymore. And yeah, it makes it so that everything in this world is different. The way that they discuss things, uh, the way that, that places exist are all going to be greatly affected by the loss of magic. Absolutely. <laughs> Another thing, just a small thing, the 
just little sentence that Elliot throws out there when they're looking at the clock that they've used in the past to get to Fillory. Quentin was like, oh yeah, you know, if we can use the key to turn it. He's like, no, this is chain wound. I took an elective in horomancy. <laughs> it's just like such a great little sentence that, yeah, again, shows the knowledge base that many of these characters have mm-hmm. gained through their time at Break Bells. And just knowing that there's so much more to their lives and their educational journeys than we've gotten to see. So just a fun little tidbit. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing to bring attention to is Katie. Mm-hmm. When Alice visits her, she says, I thought you were supposed to be in rehab. And Katie says, this is where they stick you when you don't have insurance. And, I mean, not only that, because insurance doesn't always pay for rehab Mm -hmm. or longer-term programs or or different things like that. Rehab centers can be insurance scams as well. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot there. Yeah, how it's so complicated and some rehab places are just, yeah, for-profit. And people don't even know if they're using any real data to inform their policies Mm -hmm. and practices and therapies and all of that and yeah just how messy and difficult it can be on top of the addiction the person is trying to manage and and so yeah the fact that she's stuck in there and then well originally went there herself I suppose but then was because of surveillance footage you know ends up not being able to leave when she wants to check herself out which is also yeah uh difficult like i understand why those doctors were making those decisions because it seemed like no you can't leave because you are a danger to other people Mm -hmm. and or yourself um so not just because you're talking to yourself but because you're screaming threats yeah exactly exactly and so it's it yeah it just Oh, she's such a bad situation, but it does shine just a tiny light on, yeah, things are not equal. And for some of them, even post-magic, they could fall back on their family members if they needed to, right? Mm -hmm. We know that Julia comes from a wealthier background, Quentin, Alice, Mm -hmm. well, Alice is a little more more in limbo, but... um, I'm sure they could sell a lot of the art and the house and, you know, different things. So it's not the same situation that Katie is in where not being able to have access to magic can make it so that, yeah, she's has to go to a hospital to try to manage an addiction and then be forced to stay Yeah. in ways that, yeah, others just wouldn't have to in the same way. Yeah, exactly. And it, again, I think highlights what we were talking about last episode, how Katie doesn't feel like she's one of them. She feels these important distinctions with her circumstances in her life compared to theirs. And it's in full display when Alice makes a comment like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very compelling. What about you? What are your setting in society points? I actually was, was going to talk about both Katie and Margot, so I'm mm-hmm. glad we touched on, on both of those. 
kind of building off of your conversation earlier about Elliot and Quentin and their life together and how Quentin very quickly becomes really overwhelmed and frustrated by the banality of their task and the difference between that and, you know, wanting to go on an epic quest for him. It is, I think, really interesting to then see him commit his life to the quest. Mm-hmm. You know, in a montage like this, we don't get a ton of detail, but it made me think a lot about what Quentin's experience of his depression would be like mm-hmm. in this life, where he has a specific task that is clearly overwhelming and really, really difficult to maintain a focus on. But he's able to do so for so long. And even though there are some fights that he and Elliot have, they stay there together for the rest of their lives. For someone, yeah, who who suffers from such crippling depression as we've seen him in the show, I can only imagine that there would be some new ways of, of yeah, engaging with that depression, where if the depression has... If he's so often coped with the depression by just searching for what's next, what's new, mm-hmm. after weeks, months, then years of this life, you know, is there a part that the stability of it uh, and the stability of relationship with Elliot in it gave him better coping mechanisms mm-hmm. where he actually could live a life that was not constantly trying to escape, but was in some ways stuck, but also just uh, had a a kind of meaning beyond just his happiness and beyond just what he wanted for himself. Yeah, maybe learning to appreciate some of the little everyday things more than he normally does. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it'll, it'll be really interesting. It's something I'll probably keep an eye out for in future episodes because we know that they remember what happened, but we don't know how specific those memories are, if those are memories of everything that happened, or if it's just a general nostalgia. But, you know, those kinds of really impactful lessons that one learns over such a long period of time to see if they would have any impact on a Quentin who didn't technically experience it, but who mm-hmm. remembers some of those experiences, I think is is going to be really interesting. Mm. Yeah, and I think probably the opium in the air and Fillory helped him. You're absolutely right. You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Probably that helped him. Yeah. But also, I kind of wonder, too, how him being able to remember at least pieces of this life and at least pieces of some happiness he was able to cultivate, how that might make him feel to know, not just imagine, but to know that at least there was one lifetime he could spend where it didn't end in him killing himself, Hmm. you know, where it didn't end in him only hating himself all the time. I don't, I think it's completely unrealistic to be like, oh, and he never was depressed there. Right, of course. Of course, that's not the case. If somebody needs to be medicated, then they need to be medicated. But like, just being able to see that at least in this particular life that he led, everything that he would fear or hate or try to ignore, you know, all of these different things, like they've done all have to come to pass. 
in ways that he would feel hopeless in. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's also making me now think of, because you mentioned, you know, there's a version of him, a, a timeline in which that's how he lived his life, or that's how he died. We also see a timeline where he didn't get killed. He didn't die violently, you know, and he's had to na already mm -hmm. confront dozens of timelines where he was murdered. You know, having a, a different perspective on that, I think, also is maybe interesting, uh, mm. something that, that we can dive into. But yeah, one of the things I want to talk about was how Pickwick officiates the wedding in Fillory. Mm. And it's just another way that I am watching things in Fillory and being like, why? What's your role? <laughs> What's happening here? You know, <laughs> we saw this with the father, Father Poe, on mm. After Island, mm -hmm. where, okay, father of what? Right? <laughs> like, like what, what religion is this a part of? Are weddings religious ceremonies? Are they only civil ceremonies? Did you know, he get ordained online? Exactly. He's wearing a very, very ornate outfit <laughs> when he's doing it. And then obviously, yeah, there's customs like about the brothers, you know, which Pickwick seems familiar with. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, all these things I think are interesting world building questions. There's obviously a answer if you think about just the production that they needed someone to say the lines and Pickwick's a good cast member to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but reading it as a text, uh, I think also brings up fun, interesting questions. Totally, yeah. Though, funnily enough, my last point here is uh, the opposite. Uh, it's a kind of metatextual engagement. Because as we were watching, I felt so frustrated that we didn't get anyone else's reactions to Penny being alive other than Katie's. Yeah, I know. Penny! That, that happens off screen in the time between the two episodes. And, you know, this is, I think, a downside of this kind of cliffhanger-based production or I mean it was the idea. perfect way to end the episode it was great. but it would have been a great way to start the next episode but I also understand why they didn't do it that way yeah because it's not plot mm -hmm. you know the plot development is that they realize that they can use the key to communicate with him mm -hmm. that happens in a very very funny way at the end of the last episode <laughs> This episode, as we've clearly shown, has a lot of plot to get to. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't have the time to actually go into that. They just skip over it. And yeah, it just like, it makes me so sad because mm -hmm. seeing all of those conversations with Penny, I think would be really interesting and at times heartbreaking probably, but also very funny. So yeah, uh, just uh, I think one of the, the, the downsides of, you know, storytelling in, in this way. Yeah, I mean, because that's another aspect, too, where I think it's it's also setting up pieces of what Alice and Quentin are doing mm -hmm. and engaging with this episode, where Alice is still post-Niffin mm -hmm. without magic, would do anything to get it back, but also sees herself as a monster. And, you know, like, there are these things that, by starting with kind of them having an awkward interaction, it's, like, reminding us that her deepest, darkest secret is out in a way that she tortured others for fun mm -hmm. as an infant, right? And so it's like, it's reminding the audience that that's in the background of her interactions as well as the awkward interactions between them then goes into Elliot being like, you need to get over her sort of yeah. thing and 
him being so frustrated and wanting to get back to Earth, but then moving on in, in his other life. So it's like, I get it. But also, yes, I, I'm always here for more Penny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and people appreciating him. <laughs> well, let's get into our themes and schemes for this episode. What did you bring? One is just a really kind of short one that I think they're introducing here, but will continue on throughout the rest of this season one, mm-hmm. and I think show to some degree, but it's when the fairy queen's basically saying that Margo's a brave and cunning leader, and so you must know that you have to create alliances to be able to maintain your kingdom and blah, blah, blah. Margo is still not thrilled about this idea of being forced into marrying someone that she doesn't even know the fairy queen says being a queen means sacrificing for your people get Mm -hmm. used to it and so i think they're introducing this idea here that they're going to grow as as we continue on well but i think that this is something they've actually started to touch on a little bit before this right we talked about this on the episode on the munchak where mm-hmm. where the fairy queen helps Margot because of the way that she talks to the Munjack. Yeah, I think this idea of what it means to be a ruler, what it means to be a queen in particular, is definitely a major theme in this episode. Something I, I had a lot of notes on, too. Mm-hmm. Because I think the other really interesting thing about this line, about being a queen means sacrificing for your people, get used to it. Not only is this the way that it's written, but the way that the actor performs that line really makes me think at least, what is she sacrificing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We see her, you know, after Fomar kills Micah and takes his place and Margot's covered in blood being like, no, I'm not going to marry this other person. Like, you all are, she uses the word crazy, which I don't love, but she is clearly very aggrieved, doesn't like this in what all. universe does this make any sense? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and the fairy queen is clearly very concerned that the marriage goes through and threatens Margot and, and basically forces her to do it. It's, I think, more of the fear of the fairy queen here than anything else that mm-hmm. makes Margot go through with it. And so I think with all of these together, we're not only seeing kind of new developments in the relationship between the fairy queen and Margot as they, they are talking about what it means to be a queen, but we're also seeing more nuanced motivations or, or opening the door for more nuanced motivations from the fairy queen than just messing with them mm-hmm. or just having power, which has really been what it seems to be in the past. But there seems to be some sort of need or desire or desperation in the fairy queen's manner or in her mind that is also affecting her. And, and I don't exactly remember what it is going to be. So I'm really interested in seeing yeah, how I that know. develops. Well, I'm sure you do. You know everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's laying the groundwork for the Fairy Queen, not just to be the antagonist of the season, but kind of more layered or nuanced, have, mm-hmm. have more going on there. Yeah. And also not just whimsical. You know, mm-hmm. which is, I think is another element of the themes of Fillory that they've been grappling with a lot. Yeah. But yeah, the other theme that I was thinking a lot about, which obviously we need to talk about, is the whole beauty of all life. Oh, of course. Bit, which Elliot says it sounds appropriately vague mm-hmm. <laughs> for a story. 
Let's not actually define what this is, but... Right. Well, this is what the mosaic is supposed to look like, right? Yeah, it's supposed to represent. in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the episode is fairly vague itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a potential strong interpretation is that the beauty of all life is queer love <laughs> <laughs> and unconventional families, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of uh, queer love and chosen not biological families yet it's not laid out that this is what this means and so another interpretation could be that the beauty of all life is being able to live your life with a loved one Mm -hmm. or there could be just the more basic idea that the beauty of all life is having a family which i would find quite boring and uninspired (laughs) (laughs) but regardless of kind of what it actually means like what the beauty of all life is. I mean, maybe it's just Elliot, mm-hmm. but or grief or yeah, m- mourning. Yeah. having had a connection that was such a strong connection that then you would actually mourn it. You know, so mm-hmm. so there's all sorts of maybe it's a life that isn't just the hustle and bustle of urban centers and fast paced living. You know, there's there's a lot of potentials. But I think this time I was kind of thinking about like what is actually happening while we're watching this montage and that they had magic again. So what we see is what appears to be a pretty simple yet cushy life in a way Mm -hmm. because they didn't seem to have any kind of jobs we don't see them paying for rent or clothes or food or health care. They're just like living in this house that already was there. So who was there before? What You know, like we don't know, but we don't see any of the daily minutiae that can drive, you know, grind people down in this capitalistic hellscape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... They're self-sustaining in some ways. We see them farming. A little bit, yeah, yeah. But clearly their main focus is on the mosaic. Mm-hmm. You know, may- maybe the beauty of all life is living a vegan life because <laughs> they would only have been farming the vegetables and fruits, right? They didn't have a bunch of livestock. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Maybe there were some chickens. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. It kind of, if we're talking about the beauty of all life, but then the representation we're seeing is not some of the hardest things in life. You know, we see that there's some loss, whether it's that Quentin's wife died or left him. We don't actually know. So it's it's not that there isn't any hardships, but we don't really see any of the hardships that a lot of us face that aren't like those kind of events in life. Uh, yes, you know, they're working for the larger goal of bringing magic back. But kind of, you know, after decades at it, I would wonder, well, is there a better way that they could have used their skills in Mm. magic and stuff to help make Fillory a better place for people to live? Because Elliot knows some of the difficulties people have had to face in Elliot's past, but in the future of Fillory. (laughs) Maybe at the very least try to find Martin when the Chatwins first got to Fillory and help him Mm -hmm. because it had been a bit of time since they had initially 
entered Fillory that then Martin wasn't allowed to come back in anymore. Yeah. You know, and so it's just like... Start introducing agricultural methods that don't just rely on magic so that they're <laughs> developed. Don't exactly. Yeah, so there's, there's just questions I have because, like, I, I'm not sure if the show was trying to put forth something that the writers thought was a beautiful way to live life or if it's that it would be different for every person so another person could have accidentally happened upon that golden tile in a different way and found the key you know based off of their particularities you know i'm not really sure so as a theme I'm not 100% sure what they were trying to say, <laughs> which is difficult to say whether I like or don't the theme, you know, <laughs> or how the theme would play into other, you know, th- as we continue watching the series. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I-, I like the episode, but I I feel like it is kind of vague and shaky in what the mosaic means and why and how and all of that. Yeah, that kind of leads me to my other theme. Oh, cool. Uh, which is time travel. And so talk about things being a little messy, not entirely <laughs> making sense. Time travel, I think, brings in a lot of those issues. Yeah. And I appreciate that the show doesn't try to have like one specific time travel system that just is always true. Because now we have Jane yeah, and the Clock Barons. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and we've been able to communicate with people from other timelines that didn't exist and people in the underworld. You know, so all these things have we've talked about how timelines confuse everything. Mm-hmm. And the show, I think, generally is not concerned with answering those questions because it wouldn't be worth it. But I think that one of the problems that comes in with using time travel the way they do in this episode and in similar episodes is that it starts to lead to not just time loops that are created to stop an occurrence from happening like we see for the beast, but time loops that are created in order to maintain the structure of the universe, the structure of their world. You know, you mentioned, could someone else have found the mosaic tile a different way, Mm -hmm. uh, having a different beautiful life? No, they couldn't because... Because the books were written. Because the books were written. Because Quentin had to have read those books to know that he had to give that key to Jane. But the Quentin who died before getting to the quest for the keys never went through and found it. So in the other 39 timelines, what happened? I mean, it was someone did that. You know, in the books, mm-hmm. all of these become really tangled questions. But I think that one of the problems with, yeah, this kind of time travel story is that it makes it seem like, oh, everything happened the way it happened because it happened and not mm-hmm. as tied into character motivations. And I think this is also one of the problems that I had with Quentin handing over the key, with Jane not being willing to hand over the key, although obviously there was the second key that. Marco was able to get mm-hmm. because the motivation there is Jane needs to have the key in order to create the time loops in order to help them stop the beast. But why is that so important? Mm-hmm. Why is the beast 
being killed the most important thing rather than the destruction of all magic, for example, or these other, you know, all the other outcomes that could occur. Why is Jane needing the key to create those time loops so important? They don't seem to be afraid that if they don't give Jane the key, they'll stop existing. That doesn't seem to be the issue. It seems to be about the beast being such an important threat. And while I think the show at times wants to put Martin forward as this apocalyptic threat, my watch through of this series this time has not seen him as such. Selfish, that, mm. you know, and utilizing resources in ways that are destructive. All of those are true, but not apocalyptic in the same way that Ember and Umber were, for example. But see, it doesn't bother me because even though I don't see Martin as the apocalyptic threat and the inevitable apocalyptic threat rather than like, oh, maybe we try to help this kid. Mm -hmm. They don't turn into that. But Quentin sees him as the most important apocalyptic threat to him in his experience. So for him, when Jane wants that key, he's like, oh, well, I have to do this to ensure this is what's happened. Because I think Quentin does not have the flexibility. And, you know, that, that was a, a uh, quest that they won, right? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think he is good with the flexibility of the unknown and the trial and error. I mean, we saw how frustrated he got in 14 days, mm -hmm. right, with the mosaic. And so, yeah, I, I think to me it makes sense that Quentin would make this choice. And he's read all of these fantasy and sci-fi things, you know, that have talked about time things. He's like, we need to ensure this. Maybe he's a Doctor Who fan. We, I don't think we've heard that. But like, ah, <laughs> oh, there are certain things that you can't mess with in time. You know, so I, I could very easily see Quentin as making this choice. Not because he had to make the choice, but because Quentin would make that choice. Yeah, I, I, I buy that reading. It just, I think the show doesn't do enough to make me feel like the show was intending that reading. And yeah, that just kind of, I feel like it, it could have, it could have been done slightly better. Maybe somehow, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not mm. a creative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, sure. Yeah. They, they, they could have added a little something. Yeah. But yeah, the last theme is game that I want to talk about is how Quentin at the beginning of the episode, when he's talking to Elliot, before they go through the clock, he's talking about, oh, it plays on with the classic trope of the hero's journey, <laughs> which <laughs> Elliot is just like, okay, where do we find the key? Like, we don't have time for all of that. <laughs> or maybe we do, but I don't want to hear it. <laughs> but that is very much, I think, what the show is doing, has started doing, and is continuing to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that that pairs quite nicely with towards the end of the episode when Margot is talking to Jane. Because... Margot says, Elliot and Quentin make all the real moves. I'm more of a Florian middle manager. And Jane replies, I know how that feels like you're a supporting player in somebody else's story. Your tale is your own, Margot. You may not get the appreciation you deserve, frankly, or the peace, but it is yours. And I can tell you it won't be boring. And so I think 
in a very interesting way in this episode, it's actually putting Margot as one of the central actors in the story. Not just of this episode, but alluding to the future of her being a central actor in the entire series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, yeah, I think is really cool because when the show started, Margot was a very much a side character. Elliot was definitely more important of the two side characters and she was there and we got little bits and pieces of her, but like it took a little while for her to become one of the more central characters. That's not how the classic hero's journey goes, Mm -hmm. right? And so, yeah, I just think it's, it's cool to think about and Margot is continually being brought more into the center of the storytelling. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I considered having a whole section about the idea of the hero's journey, uh, but I decided not to get into it. <laughs> you didn't want people to be like, where's the key? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into our from another point of view section because you took basically all of my themes. Oh, sorry. Uh, so whose point of view did you want to discuss? So I was thinking a lot about Margot. Yeah. She is forced into a marriage after fighting and advocating for herself and body autonomy mm-hmm. season after season in this show. And on the heels of her, like you were mentioning before, her great, brave sacrificing important compassionate decision with the muntjac and her crushing her own eye so that the fairy queen couldn't use it Mm -hmm. without her consent then being forced after fighting so many times into this marriage with this teen murderer boy essentially yeah is just so devastating and that moment in the middle of their ceremony after Fomar has decapitated his brother. And, you know, Margot was, she, she was feeling Micah, you know, she, she really wanted to be feeling Micah. (laughs) She was not a hundred percent happy about the marriage, but if she had to, she was like, well, at least he's pretty and he comes from a matriarchal society. So whose ideals he seems to, represent and and believe in yeah so you know she had a little bit of giddiness for a bit and then she's doing this marriage her best friend's not even there after she sent a help bunny to try to get them Mm -hmm. to come so she's going through with this her not husband yet is decapitated right in front of her She's dealing with her ex, with Prince yeah. S there, <laughs> yeah. who she also can't stop flirting with. Yeah. <laughs> but that moment that she turns to the wedding mm-hmm. guests and she has blood splattered on her face, on her wedding dress. She's searching the people's eyes like she's looking for a single reasonable person to take her side here. And then the fairy queen right behind her threatens her, you know, Mm -hmm. that you have to marry him now. And so she does. And this is, yeah, such a crushing point for Margot. Yeah. The only person who's ever really been able to control and 
manipulate and force Margot's hand that we've ever seen is this fairy queen. Margot is so headstrong and she is so blunt and she's brash and goes in with the guns blazing literally mm-hmm. like and yet being coerced um and and seeing that and how disturbed she is by the entire thing and that yeah nobody's there on her side she's alone in this and then she finds out her friends are dead mm-hmm. <laughs> but not only dead but giving her another task to do <laughs> as if she didn't already have enough so when she enters the clock barons to talk to Jane, I think it's really the most defeated we've ever seen Marco in the show thus far. Mm-hmm. She talks down about herself instead of everyone around her. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she doesn't have the energy or even desire to be as extra as she mm-hmm. is, which is a stark contrast for Marco. Yeah. And she says, I wish I had your magic or any magic because I'd like to build my own clock barons right about now and just live there for like five minutes without anyone trying to usurp or marry or educate or hump me. It's exhausting. I think it's so striking how honest and vulnerable she is being with Jane. Yeah. Someone she actually I don't think has ever talked to Mm -hmm. or really even knows anything about her other than what she read in the books being a fan of those and whatever Quentin said to her yeah yeah. yet she's so tired she doesn't have the energy to put up the wall that she normally has and after Jane says that you're going to be a very very powerful magician and queen she says well it doesn't feel that way Yeah, I think it's just, it's such a sad moment for this powerhouse character, but such a good moment. Yeah, yeah. the raw, real burnout, her being discouraged, her just feeling like she wants to give up. She's been trying so hard. Yeah, I just, I found it very affecting this watch through having paid more attention to Margot all along the way to see, yeah, how different she felt in in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. She tells Jane that she's just a middle manager. She's mm-hmm. not a mover or shaker like the other members of the cast. Yeah, that's such a un-Margot-ish way of thinking about things or way of, mm-hmm. you know, talking about herself She's Margot the Destroyer. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, saying that she is secondary to the stories of these other people, especially these men who are around her, I think is a result of that patriarchy just beating her down Mm -hmm. throughout the last couple of seasons. Yeah. As she's been a high queen, she's been exalted to a place of power, and she's seen how her gender has continued to ask so much more of her than mm-hmm. does anyone else. And yeah. yeah, I think that that you're absolutely right that she's coming to Jane defeated in a way. And yet she is the reason the group gets the key and mm-hmm. that Quentin and Elliot live. Yeah. Right after that, she has to go exhume a body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then after she commiserates with them, go back to her pubescent, sadistic husband. 
Yeah. <laughs> they can sit around and smell the peaches. She has to go fight off a pubescent little king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of those moments where we see her being one of the strongest characters in the entire show. Absolutely. Even when she wants to just escape and wallow, she doesn't. Exactly. Imagine if Quentin went through a fraction <laughs> of what Margot's been experiencing. No, I don't want to imagine. <laughs> it, would, it would be a lot. <laughs> what about you? Who's your POV? Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about Katie. Oh, Katie. Obviously in, a, in just such a awful place. You Another know, she... person who feels very defeated right now. Yeah. Last episode, she tried to kill herself. We saw her go back to drugs, what she had been fighting for months, and mostly doing that for other people. First for Julia, and then for Penny. And when Penny died, she gave up. She didn't even want to make the choice of what to do with his body. And so when we come to her at the beginning of this episode, yeah, if I was Penny, even as... as a viewer, I'd expect her to be ecstatic to see him alive. Oh, she might get hope again. But that's not the case for her because this isn't just good news. I mean, generally, it's just not good news, but <laughs> it's not going to do anything about how she was broken. Yeah. She's like, how is this supposed to help me? Exactly. Uh, and he says, I want to help you. But she says, you can't. Not only is it frustrating because, yeah, okay, he's not dead, but she can't touch him and she can only see him when she's holding a key that makes her feel physically ill. Mm -hmm. The way that she puts this is harsh, but in a way it's true. He's the reason that she's in there, that she broke and maybe it was that he broke her or death broke her or she broke herself when he died, but she broke, you know, that's the word that she uses and she has to put herself back together. Yeah, she says, I tried to save you and I failed and it broke me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just him dying that broke her, but the fact that she was putting everything she had and she failed at it. Absolutely. And so in the scene, you know, it's, it's really heartbreaking because it's not the reunion that you'd want between these characters, you know, after seeing the last episode where Penny felt so much despair for her, mm -hmm. uh, and we felt such heart heartbreak knowing that they couldn't talk to each other then, here we see a greater heartbreak because she refuses any kind of connection with him. But I also think it reveals her strength because before he came in and during this conversation, she is prioritizing herself. She is seeing her goal as to put herself back together, as not just despairing, not giving up, but to fight and knowing that it's going to be so, so difficult to do so. Dealing with not only the psychological elements, the depression, the grief, the guilt, but the addiction itself, all that together is going to be so difficult and... Yet she is saying, you know, it's not over. I'm still going to be fighting. Mm -hmm. Even though she had, she was overcome by it and overdosed, whether intentionally or not. Uh, I certainly read it as intentional. At the very least, 
I might die from this and it doesn't matter. Exactly. But here, that's not her perspective. And so for her to, to kind of make that determined stance, I think, is is really, really powerful. And then makes it all the more tragic that the act of making that stance is what means that she is going to be trapped in this mm-hmm. institution that can't serve her. Mm-hmm. She definitely needs help, I would say. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But this institution won't understand everything that she's going through. It can't because... No one's going to believe her when she says, I let my ex-boyfriend die of super cancer, but now he's back as a ghost. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no one will believe that <laughs> unless you're at Break Bells, which doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. Or another magic facility, which doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And so her use of violence, really brutal violence, to try to escape, hmm. I think is really also a strong character moment because it reminds us that Katie is someone who is willing to use violence and is ready to use violence. You know, back in the first episode when Martin came in through the mirror, she hit off battle magic at him immediately. And here she uses violence again because she recognizes that she's trapped and that there's no... There's no way that she can work within this system to help herself. And so she tries to escape and she fails at doing so ultimately. But I think that also for one highlights her desperation and the fact that she is utterly alone in what she's doing, but also a continued example of her determination that she is willing to literally fight and possibly get further hurt to do what she thinks is right for herself. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm, I'm very impressed with Katie this episode, knowing myself as someone who would shrink from so much of that in similar similar situation. It's just, uh, it, it's, yeah, tragic and also highlights why her addition to the cast is, is such a, a great inclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so important for when we think about her character, Of course, she is strong and such a fighter, but so much of the time she is fighting for others. And Mm -hmm. this is the first time we see her really fighting for herself in a more prolonged way in this series. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's another really, really important way to show how the lack of magic is impacting people as well, Mm. because now we're semi-used to them not having magic. in this season so far but being reminded how it can be a huge deal for some characters especially hedge witches and uh, characters who have had to rely on magic for survival Mm -hmm. yeah all right well i think that's going to wrap up our discussion what do you think about the title of the episode a life in the day yeah, I, I think it's okay. I mean, obviously it's a play on a day in the life. I'm sure that they could have come up with something maybe a little more compelling, but when I hear the title, I know what episode it is, which uh, I like for episode titles. <laughs> Same, yeah. And, you know, as a Beatles super fan, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the reference works, I think, a little bit better on me. That's true. Because I do like it. Uh, yeah, it's not perfect, but exactly as you said, I 
knew exactly what was going to be happening in this episode, at least that aspect of this episode, Mm -hmm. just from the title. Yeah. All right. Well, then what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we'll be watching episode six, Do You Like Teeth? Where we meet an incubus, but not the sexy kind, thankfully. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you will become a patron and help us keep the show running. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!